0: Discontentment. This is a word that best sums up the mental state of millions and millions of Americans. And just to be clear, discontentment, this is the disappointment that we feel whenever we become dissatisfied with our current situation, which includes our possessions and our employment and even our social status. In other words, the discontent individual is dissatisfied with their lot in life, and as a result, their dissatisfaction becomes discouragement, which then turns into depression. And it's sad to say that depression gives way to despair and distress as the discontent person begins to wrestle with feelings of dejection. Now, with all this in mind, we should take a moment to consider uh, some data that has been collected by researchers at Gallup who sought to understand you know, the discontent state of most Americans. And, and according to one Gallup poll, the total amount of unhappy people has been on the rise since 2007. That's right. Since 2007, we've seen a steady A rate of increase of people who are discontent with their lives. And it just so happens that 2007 is the same year when the Apple smartphone first hit the market. Hmm. Now listen, correlation isn't evidence of causation and yet it is still interesting to note that the total number of discontent people has been on the rise since 2007 and this certainly does seem to correlate with the increasing number of people who own and operate smartphones. Can't help but to wonder. I can't help but to wonder if there's a clear connection between our smartphones and the unhappiness that comes from being discontent. Think about it. Our phones actually provide us with the ability to window shop at all hours of the day and night. You know, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go look at things that you can't afford. And that's what we do. I have no doubt that there are people who use their cell phones to create never ending wish lists. and, And at the same time, they're creating endless opportunities for covetousness. You know, those covetous desires that leave us feeling discontent with what we already have. Not only that, but listen, smartphones also provide us with instant access to people who are clearly more interesting than the people we're with. And So rather than learning to be content with the conversations that we're having with the people who are physically present with us, many people demonstrate their relational discontentment by ignoring the people who are present so that we can spend our time on smartphones with other discontent people who are also ignoring the people that they're with. Can't even tell you how many times I've seen couples at restaurants sitting across the table from their date, but rather than engaging in a conversation with the person they're physically with, their faces are buried in their cell phone screen as they connect with other people who are apparently more interesting than the person they're actually dating. What's even worse is that there are many people who are so discontent with either their marriage or their single status that they spend hours of their day using their smartphone as a portal into the perverted world of pornography. Yeah, they're not interested in human connections anymore at all. They just want to go and look at naked people on their cell phones. And with all this being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there are several studies that have shown the clear connection between the time we spend scrolling on our smartphones and the increasing discontentment that many people are wrestling with today. And listen, this is just dealing with smartphones here. There, there's many reasons for why people suffer from discontentment. And in light of all this data, we can be certain that the church is now filled with discontent Christians who are no longer satisfied with the possessions they have. They're no longer satisfied with their employment position or their paycheck, nor are they you know, content with their social status or the area they're, they're serving in the churches. Everywhere they turn, it's, they're just discontent. This sounds like something that you're struggling with, and it's my prayer that our study today will help us to understand that the Lord is actually calling us to become Christians who are content. The Lord is calling us to become content in Christ Jesus. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see that content Christians are joyful Christians. Secondly, we'll learn that content Christians are prayerful Christians. Thirdly, and finally today, we'll learn that content Christians are grateful Christians. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul encouraging every Christian to be content in Christ. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you. It was in our study last week when we learned about the importance of belonging to a Christ-centered community. And it's for this reason that Paul encouraged the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to respect their leaders, to rebuke those who rebel, and to reconcile with those who repent so that they can maintain a community that's centered in Christ. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that the Christ-centered Christian is also the believer who learns how to be content in Christ. And with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you would, let's begin reading there at verse 16, because here Paul declares, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's presenting us with three directives which are designed to help Christians to learn how to be content in Christ Jesus. And just to be clear, listen, the word content in this context, it's used of those who are satisfied. The person who is content is a person who is satisfied with their lot in life. And not only that, but listen, the Christian who is content is a believer who is content in Christ. And and this is the Christian who has come to realize that our God has promised to supply for all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. With that being the case, we can rest in knowing that those who trust in the Lord, well, we're going to be those believers who always have all sufficiency in all things according to the grace of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you will always have all sufficiency in all things according to the grace of God, even in a Biden economy? Do you believe that? If so, then shouldn't we then always rejoice? With that, I want to consider how Paul puts it again here in verse 16. Here again, he declares, rejoice always. That word rejoice was translated from a Greek word which was used as a departing salutation. In this sense, the word that Paul was using was basically wishing them well. He's wishing them well with this common farewell. The Greek word was also used in order to invoke cheerful happiness upon those who heard it. And not only that, but the same word was also used in order to bring joy to the recipient. And so when Paul directed those disciples to rejoice always... He was actually encouraging them to always be filled with joy. He's wrapping up this epistle by saying, Hey, always be filled with joy. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 16. They put it like this Always be joyful. Always be joyful. Christians have been called to always be joyful, and as we consider this command, well, it's important for us to understand that Paul was not suggesting that it's a sin to experience sorrow. He's not saying that sadness is a sin. If you're sad this morning, listen, sadness is not a sin. I'll remind you, Jesus himself wept when he saw Mary weeping over the death of her brother. Not only that, but I also remind you that Paul has uh, challenged us to be those Christians who are ready to weep with those who weep. And so we should. With this in mind, we should take a moment to ask, well, then how can we be joyful believers even when we're suffering in sorrow? If we're weeping, if we're sad, how can we also then always be filled with joy? Without debate, this seems like a difficult conundrum with no simple solution, and yet I'd like to suggest that the best way to solve this problem is to learn how to be content, and yes, even when times are tough. You see, it's the content Christian who is able to turn hardship into happiness. It's the content Christian who's able to turn sorrow into a reason to celebrate. And in order to explain how, we should take some time to consider... How to Become Content Christians. And with this as the focus, I want to take some time to consider the proper perspective of the Christian who is content. Now, with with this focus on perspective, if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to consider this concept of perspective. You see, the word perspective in this context, it refers to the mental point of view that helps us to form our attitudes and our understanding of the way things actually are. You see, there's the way that that, that things actually are, and then there's our perspective of those things. You might not know this, but many of our arguments with other people have less to do with the way things really are, and they have more to do with our perspective on the way things actually are. You see, we all have a perspective perspective on reality. And it's sad to say that that too many of us here in the world have a finite perspective that comes from the human understanding which results in a sorrow that is always hopeless. Why? Well, because we don't actually know what's going to happen tomorrow and a lot of us assume the worst. But those who will gain the eternal perspective that comes from the mind of God will then learn how to become content Christians who are able to turn hardships into happiness as we realize that there's a God in heaven who's in control, who's able to do those things as he's promised. To make my case, let's consider the encouragement that the Lord Jesus presents here in Matthew chapter 5. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 10, here Christ Jesus presents us with an interesting perspective on reality by declaring, blessed are those who are persecuted. That's what he says. According to Jesus, the believer who is suffering the pain of persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ is blessed. Now, what kind of interesting perspective is this? That we're blessed through persecution? According to Jesus, the believer who is suffering the pain of persecution is not only able to rejoice, but we have exceeding gladness. So long as we maintain an eternal perspective that helps us to fix our focus on the finish line. You know, if you're, if you're fixing your focus on the persecution, well, there's not much, you know, gladness in that. There's not much happiness in that moment. But if you fix your focus on the finish line when eternal rewards are being poured out, hey, there's, there's a way to turn that hardship into happiness, Amen. And in order to maintain this eternal perspective which helps us to turn the pain of persecution into an opportunity for rejoicing, we must first become content Christians who commit our lives into the capable hands of Christ Jesus and in this way, we'll learn how to roll with all the punches as we give up on the delusion of being in control. Much like the fighter who steps into the ring, that fighter realizes that the reality is the other guy is going to start punching him pretty soon. That's just the reality of things. And so you start learning to roll with the punches. And that's what we have to do while we're here in this world, Christian. We have to realize that the enemy is coming to attack. That's just the reality. And you can try to control your way out of that But it's not going to work. In order to further explain my point here, let's take a moment to consider the contrast between the Christians who are content and the Christians who try to control everything and everyone around them. You might not know this, but there are people who are control freaks. I know you probably don't know anybody like that. There are control freaks who tend to spend a great deal of time and energy attempting to control everything that is actually beyond their control. That's what all the lockdowns over COVID was. It was a bunch of control freaks. A bunch of people who thought that they could legislate their way out of this pandemic. How'd that work? Not very well. There's control freaks in the church who, who are trying to control everyone and everything to make sure that everybody... You know, I look back to the lockdown, you know, time and there were people who left our church because we didn't force everyone to wear masks. And there were people who left the church because we provided masks for people who wanted to wear them. Both control freaks. And they're miserable. The control freaks who, who spend all of their time and energy attempting to control things that are beyond their control are miserable. That They're controlling you know, people you know, and, and once they discover that they can't tr- control everybody and everything, they stress out, they're depressed, they're filled with anxiety, they're angry. Listen, control freaks are only happy when things are going the way they want them to go, which is very rare. And so they're rarely happy. In contrast to this, the Christian who will simply learn to be content with the way things actually are, they become believers who begin to gain an eternal perspective as we begin to realize that we don't need to control everything. Why? Well, because we're not God. At the same time, the eternal perspective helps us to realize that God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. And as we begin to view the world from this eternal perspective, we'll not only be able to roll with the punches, but we'll also learn how to turn hardships into happiness as we realize that the trials and the troubles that we're actually going through is the Lord's way of testing our faith, and this is actually just one more opportunity for for spiritual growth. I like the way that James explained it in the first chapter of his epistle. It's there where he declares, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now listen, when when James tells us here to count it all joy, he's using the verb form of the Greek word, uh, that uh, that Paul used in our text today when Paul says rejoice always. So here we find the verb form of that word rejoice. James says count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. Count it all joy when you're suffering from these hardships. Rejoice always. Those who trust in Jesus have been called to see every trial And every trouble and every tragedy has another reason to rejoice. And so rather than trying to control everything around us in the hopes that we can somehow avoid every tough test and trial, we should instead become those believers who are simply content to let God be God. Be content to let God be in control. And be content with the fact that the Lord is going to test our faith so that we can continue to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing that the Lord might use a test to use a trial and a tragedy to make us more like Jesus? Can't we rejoice in that? I like the way that the Apostle Peter presented this in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's there where he declares, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christian, listen, the Lord has a perfect plan to test our faith with fiery trials because it's the testing that comes from these trials that refines our faith so that it's much more precious than gold that perishes. And while I have no doubt that these fiery trials are going to be painful for us to endure, those who will maintain an eternal perspective by letting God be God, well, we'll begin to realize that the Christian who is content in their relationship with Jesus Christ will also rejoice with joy that's inexpressible as we begin to realize that his grace is sufficient for us. I like the way that Paul put it in Philippians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We must not fail to notice that Paul didn't tell us to rejoice in the trial. He didn't say rejoice in the trial, nor did he direct us to rejoice in the tests that result in our sanctification. He didn't say, oh, you're going through a hard time. Rejoice in the hard time. Rejoice in the pain. He didn't say rejoice in the tragedy. He said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. In other words, the Christian who learns to be content in allowing God to be God the Christian who will be content with the sanctifying work of Christ Jesus who puts our faith to the test, well, we begin to realize that every tough test is actually an opportunity to experience the joy of Jesus. And so therefore, we can rejoice always in the Lord. What this means then is that content Christians are joyful Christians because we learn how to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of the situation and circumstances. Not only that, but content Christians are also prayerful Christians who recognize that we need help from our Almighty God. And with this as our focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul. He's continuing to help his audience to learn how to be content. And if you would look with me again, we'll back up and begin reading again at verse 16. Here again, Paul declares, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience now to understand that the content Christian is not only able to turn hardships into happiness as we rejoice in the Lord, but he also helps us to realize that the content Christian is a believer who is constantly connecting with the Lord in prayer. The content Christian allows God to be God as we look to him prayerfully for his help. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word prayer found there in verse 17, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who worship God through the spiritual submission of supplication. Prayer is a form of worship. Because prayer helps us to connect with God through spiritual supplication. And what this means then is that prayer is a devotional discipline that must begin with a humble heart because God rejects the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we must connect with God with humility. To make my case, we should consider the lesson that Christ Jesus presented as as he was asked about the practice of prayer. And with this as the focus... Hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And as you make your way to the 6th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that proper prayer takes a humble heart. And the reason why is because the supplications that we're prayerfully presenting to the Lord, well, these supplications must be based on the humble recognition that we need God's help. Please understand When it comes to prayer, Jesus is not your homeboy. Prayer isn't like peer-to-peer communication. And I I get it, like a lot of pastors want to talk about prayer being simple communication with God. And that is true. And yet this is not peer-to-peer communication. God is not our equal. He's not the man upstairs that we're going to check in on. When we pray, we have to understand that we are the servants, he is the master, and we are presenting our supplications to him because he's the one in control. With all this in mind, I want to consider the lesson that the Lord presents about prayer here in Matthew chapter 6. Look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here Christ Jesus declares, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand uh, to, to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, I'm always amazed by the fact that Jesus says, don't pray with vain repetitions. And then people turn around and take the very next prayer, the model prayer that Jesus presents, and they use that as a vain repetition to pray over and over and over and over and over again. Listen, this model prayer wasn't given to us so that we can just repeat it over and over and over and over again and turn it into a vain repetition. This is simply a model prayer that Jesus is saying, hey, here, here's, here's an example of what our prayers ought to look like. And with that, let's consider this model prayer beginning there at uh, verse 9. He says, in this matter, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting us with a model prayer. And listen. This isn't something that we need to repeat like some sort of magical incantation that if we say all the words right that you know some sort of magic is going to happen or something like that. No, this is just a model prayer. Helps us to understand how we ought to pray. And Jesus here is helping his his disciples to, to first understand how not to pray and he tells us don't pray like the hypocrites. Prayer isn't something that we use to like, you know, Present our, you know, spirituality using all the Christianese words that we can come up with in a single prayer, so that people are impressed with the way we pray and these sort. Of, no, no, that's not what prayer is for. We don't need to pray repetitively, thinking that you know if we just say the same prayer over and over enough, that God will finally answer it. There are some don'ts when it comes to prayer, but then there are some do's here, and, and, and Christ Jesus here presents us with a basic outline which helps us to grasp the, the sorts of prayers that we ought to be praying. For example, rather than praying for a retirement plan, Jesus encourages us to pray for daily provisions. Rather than praying for a you know, good 401k so that we can retire, Jesus says, no, pray, pray for daily provision. Prayer ought to be something that helps us to rely on the Lord every day. And rather than praying for the the punishment of our enemies, we ought to be praying for personal deliverance from evil so that we might live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. These are the sorts of things that we ought to be praying for. At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that this model prayer helps us to understand that proper prayers must be offered with a humble heart as we recognize the authority of the one to whom we're praying. For example, it's there in verse 9 where Jesus calls us to pray to our heavenly Father. And at the same time, he helps us to understand that we ought to hallow his name. We're not praying to our homeboy. We're not praying peer-to-peer to an equal We're praying to our heavenly father whose name we ought to hallow. And in verse 10, Jesus encourages us to pray for the day when the kingdom of God will come. We're not praying for our kingdom to be built. We're praying for his kingdom to come. We're not praying for our will to be done. We're to pray for his will to be done. Our prayer should have less to do with our discontent wish list and ought to have more to do with praying for the power we need to submit our will and our wants to the will of our Heavenly Father. This reminds me of the way that Jesus prayed on the night of his arrest. It's in Luke chapter 22. There Luke tells us about the way that the Lord Jesus knelt down and prayed just prior to his rest leading up to his crucifixion and and knowing what he was about to endure on the cross, knowing that he was about to receive the full cup of the Father's wrath. He prays, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As we can consider this prayer here, we can see here how the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ was wondering if there was a plan B. Is there, is there another way to save humanity without you know, suffering the full cup of, of the wrath of God? Now listen, if there was a plan B, you certainly wouldn't want to miss out on that simply because you didn't ask. Uh, you know, there, there's certainly a concept of it, those who ask not have not, right? And so, there's certainly nothing wrong with bringing our prayer requests to the Lord, saying, "Hey, if 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 it's possible, can I have this?" And so that's what Jesus did in His humanity. He prays, "Hey, if if there's another way, you know, if you can if you can take this cup from me, but still save people, can we do that?" And unfortunately, there wasn't another way. Jesus had to die on the cross and receive the full cup of the Father's wrath for our salvation. But as He prayed, the Lord was also quick to submit the will of his humanity to the will of his heavenly father. And he prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And in light of our savior's example, it's important for us to understand that our prayerful supplications ought to be presented with a content commitment to submitting to the perfect will of our heavenly father. Nothing wrong with presenting our prayers, so long as we have the heart that says, nevertheless, I want your will, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To further grasp my point, let's consider the way that Paul demonstrated this principle. And so continue holding your place there in First Thessalonians. And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Second Corinthians. I'd like you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12. As you make your way to the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that Paul was clearly a prayerful man. And as a prayerful man, Paul was used by God. God used him to cast demons out of those who were possessed. God used him to heal those who were sick. And yet, at the same time, he was also a man who had to learn how to be content after realizing that the Lord wasn't going to give him what he had prayed for. I want to consider the situation that he records here in Second Corinthians chapter 12. Look with me there, beginning of verse 7. Here Paul declares, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Here in these verses, we learn about the way that Paul prayed for relief from the thorn that had been placed in his flesh. And after praying three times for the Lord to heal him of this infirmity, the Lord responded to his prayers by helping him to understand that there are times when the Lord is leading us to simply be content with the way things are. There are times when he wants us to learn to be content as we continue to wait for the day when we will finally and forever be set free from infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses that we experience while we're here in this world. And that's what Paul did. He learned to be content with the Lord saying, no. In light of this, we can see that there are times when the Lord withholds healing that we've prayed for, and, and one reason why is because, you know, uh, he wants us to stop relying on our natural strength while simultaneously learning how to rely on the sufficient strength of our Savior Jesus. And as we learn how to walk in the strength of our Savior's grace, we also learn how to be content with the will of God. Sadly, there are many believers who struggle to learn this lesson because who likes this lesson? We want to be able to take our prayers to God and and present our prayers to God and get yes every time, right? And so it's hard to learn this lesson. And as a result, many tend to become discontent disciples because they're not content with the Lord saying no. If this sounds like something that you struggle with, then it's important for us to remember that God answers our prayerful supplications according to his will, not ours. This was precisely the point that the Apostle John was making in 1 John chapter 5. It's there where he declares, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Christian, listen, the Lord answers our prayers according to his will. Therefore, when we pray according to his will, we we, we receive exactly what we pray for. But if we pray in a way that's not according to his will, then we get the no. And rather than getting upset when God says no... Rather than getting upset when God fails to answer our prayers in the way that we want him to, let's repent of every discontent disappointment by becoming those content Christians who pray like Jesus prayed when he submitted his will to the will of his heavenly father. Rather than ending every prayer in the name of Jesus, we ought to maybe end every prayer not as I will, but as you will, Lord. Amen. We have to submit our will to the perfect will of our Heavenly Father as we learn how to be content Christians. And in that state of contentment, let's pray without ceasing as we recognize that we need help from our Heavenly Father to live in a way that brings Him glory. And yeah, even when times are tough. I like the way that Paul put it in Philippians chapter 4 there. He declares, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In other words, the Christian who is content in Christ, we can bring our prayerful supplications before the Lord, and then trust that he will answer them according to his will. And knowing that he will answer those prayers according to his will, then we can just have peace with whatever happens. The reason why is because we know that our Heavenly Father will answer our prayers perfectly. Our Heavenly Father will answer our prayer requests perfectly. And so regardless of how he answers them, we can have peace in knowing that whatever the answer is, it's perfect. It's right. Therefore, we don't have to stress out like control freaks who think that if I just say the right words in the right orders and if I just say it enough times, you know, and if I just have enough faith, then then he'll do exactly what I'm asking for. Don't be a control freak. Let God be God and be content with whatever he chooses to do. Therefore, we can simply present our supplications to the Lord as we continue praying without ceasing. And as we wait for the Lord's response, we rest in the reality that God is going to answer our prayers according to his perfect will. Now, this brings us to our third point, because listen, content Christians are not only joyful Christians, and content Christians are not only prayerful Christians, but content Christians are also grateful Christians. And with this as the focus, let's make our way now back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul. He's continuing to help his audience to learn how to be content. And with that, I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 16. Here again, Paul declares, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, I'm not going to lie because I really struggle with this third command. Uh, You see, when it comes to the command to rejoice in all things, I I get it. You know, I, I understand how to turn hardships. Into happiness by looking at the silver linings on the clouds and these sorts of things. I get that. And and when it comes to the command of praying without ceasing, you know, it makes perfect sense that we have to prayerfully seek the will of God as we wait for the Lord to answer our prayers. And that all makes sense to me. But when it comes to this command to give thanks for everything, I have a hard time with this. And the reason why is because, listen, the world is filled with things that I struggle to be thankful for. For example, you know, I'm not thankful for cancer. And I never will be. Cancer killed my mom, and I'm still mad about it. So, (laughs) you know, I'm never going to be thankful for cancer. I'm not going to be thankful for COVID, nor am I going to be thankful for the legislatures who used COVID to, you know, control everybody. I'm not thankful for abortionists. And I never will be. You know, abortion doctors just, just, uh, I, I can't imagine being a doctor and knowing all that information and, des- and deciding that it's okay to go ahead and kill babies. I'm not thankful for Nazis. You know. And, and, and never w- will there come a day when I wake up and go, maybe the Nazis did a few good things. Nope, nope. <laughs> all Nazis are bad. Listen, I'm not thankful for mosquitoes and fire ants. <laughs> it's part of the curse, I'm certain of it. I'm not thankful for the devil and his demons. And I never will be. And listen, I could spend the rest of our time today listing all of the things that I could never be thankful for. For example, the scientists who decided that they're going to take plants and turn it into something that almost looks and tastes like meat. I am not thankful for those people. They are clearly living in sin. I don't know what tofurkey is, but... I'm struggling with the command that calls us to give thanks for everything. That being the case, we should spend some time considering the question, what did Paul mean when he declared in everything give thanks? Because I certainly don't think that Paul meant to say, be thankful for Nazis and mosquitoes, right? Like, I don't think he's saying that it'll help us to know that the phrase give thanks was translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who actively expressed their appreciation for things that we're grateful for. And without debate, there are many things for us to be grateful for. Amen. I'm grateful for the free gift of grace by which sinners are saved simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. This free gift of grace that cleanses our sins. Well, I am grateful for the grace of God. I'm grateful for our fellowship of faith where the gifts of the Holy Spirit are are being used by a body of believers for the edification of all. I'm grateful for this church. I'm personally grateful for my wife, Brenda, because listen, there aren't many who would have had the patience to put up with me every day. And yet God found this one gal who was ready to be patient with, and let's be honest, I mean, she's just trying to cash in. I'm the cash cow, you know, that... She looked around for someone to to receive spiritual blessings forever from, and and she said, oh, there's the guy that's going to make me be patient every day so that I can get heavenly rewards, and so she said, I do. But but I'm grateful for my wife, Brenda. There's many things to be grateful for, and I have no doubt that we all have many things that we are grateful for, and yet this still doesn't help us to become those believers who are grateful for everything. Everything nor do I think Paul was encouraging us to be grateful for murderers and mosquitoes. No, instead, he was instructing us to be grateful for the way that God uses every circumstance to make us more like Jesus. He was directing us to become content Christians who are always grateful for the way that the Lord works all things together for our good. I like the way that Paul explains this. He, he, he presents the statement with a little more clarity in Ephesians chapter 5. It's verse 20 where he declares, Give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ should always have a heart that's filled with gratitude as we realize that God is able to use every single situation for the benefit of the believer. He can take every horrible thing in this world and still use it for the good of those who love him. And we can be grateful for every circumstance as we begin to realize that God is glorified in the way that we patiently endure every trial and every tribulation. And with that being the case, we should give God thanks for everything as we praise his holy name, knowing that he will use everything that happens as a way of sanctifying us. And in this, he receives the glory. I like the way that Paul explains it in Hebrews chapter 13. It's verse 15 where he declares, by him, that's by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Christian, listen, no matter the circumstances and regardless of the situations, we ought to express our gratitude to God by singing songs of praise in the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason why, it's because he's going to take the tough trials that we're facing today and he's going to use the tough tests that we find ourselves in the middle of. He'll use them to sanctify our lives so so that we might become more and more like Jesus Christ. And in this, we can be grateful. What this means is that the content Christian will gratefully praise the Lord rather than grumbling about all the issues that we don't like. I like the way that Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2. It's verse 14 where he declares, do all things without complaining and disputing. I don't know about you, but this verse makes me want to complain. But the content Christian who is truly thankful will set aside all complaints. He says, do all things without complaining. That, that word complaining can also be rendered grumbling. The content Christian who is truly thankful is too grateful to grumble. So how about you? Do you you grumble? Because if you're grumbling, guess what you're not? You're, you're not grateful. With that, we should take a moment to examine our own hearts by asking, Am I a grateful believer? Or am I a discontent disciple who's always grumbling? Am I content and thankful for the perfect provision of the Lord? Or am I constantly clamoring for more and more of what the Lord somehow seems to be failing to provide us with? With these questions in mind, let's consider the challenge that Paul presented to a pastor named Timothy. It's actually in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There Paul declares this. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In light of these verses, we should ask, am I content with the perfect provision of the Lord? Or am I clamoring to acquire more and more worldly wealth? Do you have a discontent desire for more or, or or are you spending all of your time trying to acquire the, the wealth of this world? Or are you humbly grateful for the way that the Lord has met all of your daily needs? And is that sufficient for you? If it's true that you're still clamoring to acquire the wealth of this world because you think that this is the path of true happiness, Please trust me when I tell you that our discontent desires will always result in more and more sorrow and sadness. Those who desire to be rich will fall into temptations and into a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And the reason why is because the love of money will cause us to stray away from Jesus Christ. Having money isn't the issue, it's loving that money. And it's desiring more of that money. And with that being the case, I encourage you to follow the instructions that Paul presented in Hebrews chapter 13. There he declares, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Rather than conducting ourselves in a covetous way, we ought to become those believers who learn how to be content with what we already have in Christ Jesus. And while I realize that the perfect provision of the Lord doesn't always include the things that we would love to have, we can still be grateful in knowing that the Lord will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. Sadly, there are Christians who forsake the Lord in the pursuit of worldly wealth. And I want you to know today that whatever that thing is that you want so badly that you're willing to work every Sunday to get it, having the Lord is much better. Having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is way better than a new iPhone or a new car or a bigger house or a better boat or whatever it is. And if you think pursuing the wealth of this world is going to result in happiness, Paul's already told us that it won't. It, it will only result in more sorrow. Knowing that Jesus will never leave us nor will he forsake us, then we can be grateful in all the things that we have today. And even if the balance in our bank account's not looking good. Tomorrow, wake up and ask the Lord to provide you with daily bread. And he will. He will supply for all of our needs as we walk by faith with him. And with this as the goal, I want to take one last look at our text today. And so if you would look with me again here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want to back up once more and begin reading at verse 16. Here Paul declares, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Christian, listen, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard a Christian say, if only I knew God's will for me, then I would do that. I just want to know God's will. If I just knew God's will, that's what I would do. And yet, I know they don't rejoice always. They don't pray without ceasing. They don't give thanks for everything. And yet they assure me that if they just knew God's will, they would do it. You want to know God's will for your life? His perfect will? There it is. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And in everything give thanks. This is God's will for us. That's what Paul says. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus For you, for me, for all of us. It's God's perfect will for us to rejoice always. It's God's perfect will for us to pray without ceasing. It's God's perfect will for us to give thanks to the Lord in everything. And with all of this as the goal, we would all do well to realize that it is God's perfect will for us to become content Christians because content Christians are joyful Christians. Content Christians are prayerful Christians and content Christians are grateful Christians rather than staying up all night scrolling on our phones, looking at all the discontent desires that we have as we create our endless wish lists. Listen, we don't need to clamor after all the things that we wished we had. Instead, we should simply seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and if we will, then we can, uh, we can rest assured that he will then add to us daily the things that we need. And so let's do that with a with a content heart let's seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and wait for the lord to add unto us those things that he knows we need let's walk by faith with jesus christ and as we walk by faith with jesus christ the holy spirit will then help us to become content in christ let's pray